Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of the second season of Web Perspectives. My name's Sean, and in this episode, Mike and I interview fellow podcaster, Evolve U Web Development Bootcamp Program Lead, and Community Leader at Rainforest Alberta, Al Dagan. How has the startup community in Alberta transformed since the pandemic? With in-person events resuming, how can we develop our startup ideas and network with the right people to grow our business connections? With most businesses adopting hybrid remote work policies, how can emerging web development bootcamp graduates best take advantage of the changing web development landscape and job market to find the best career fit for themselves? Find out all this and more in this two-hour episode of Web Perspectives. Hi, and welcome to Web Perspectives, the go-to podcast for instant web development tips, tricks, career advice, and software development best practices. Put the soft skills back into software and supercharge your web development career. Ow, welcome to Web Perspectives. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Al, we've been meaning to have you on for a while. We came on with you at Pixels and Pints when we had a little bit of a podcasting showdown. And I recall (laughs) you have your own podcast, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. The moment I have one. So as history goes, we'll go way back. So back in like 2005 or something, I was really into photography. I still am, but not anywhere near as much as I was. And I got introduced to podcasts a little bit more seriously back then. And I started following a bunch of photography podcasts. And I just really digged how you could have your own radio show and no one could tell you what to do. You could kind of do whatever you wanted. And so after hearing a few shows that I really liked, I started to pick little parts of them that I really liked. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a show. And it was called I Am Aduro because my photography company is called Aduro Photography. And I walked into an event one day And this guy points at me and he goes, hey, look, Aduro's here. And he didn't actually know what my name was. (laughs) And and then this other guy says, it's like he should walk in and go like, hello, I am Aduro. You know, and it was was like an inside joke or (laughs) whatever. And then I thought, okay, so I'm going to name my show that. And it started off total crap like every other podcast does when it starts out. And you try all kinds of different things. Eventually... I got into a bit of a role and it was starting to get some traction. I was starting to get some listeners and stuff. And then this one guy, I ran into him at another photography event and he goes, Hey, you're Al. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time. I'm like, really? (laughs) Okay. Someone's actually listening. This is awesome. And I invited him to be my co-host. And so I think I made 80 episodes altogether. And I think probably at least 40 or so he was my co-host on the show. And we interviewed people from all over the world. And we did local photographers, local models and stuff like that, too. That's kind of how we started out. But it was so much work, guys. I had tons of structure. And I had like sections of the show. I had little intros for each section. And and it was so much work. And the more structure and stuff you put around it, the more difficult and the more amount of work it becomes. So um, anyway, 
I just got so busy and so tired of trying to figure out what I was going to talk about and find things for each section or whatever. I just ended up stopped doing it. And my partner kind of disappeared, got a really good job and he was too busy and stuff. So mm. we just kind of stopped there and then tried a couple other show concepts since then. And then I really got into attending Rainforest Alberta, the lunch without lunch events. And I started going to those like every week, each lunch without lunch. This was back in person before, you know, the horrible zombie apocalypse hit us, but <laughs> we would have right. at the beginning of the lunch without lunch, they would go up there, they would talk about what Rainforest was all about. And then they would invite all the newbies to come up to the front and introduce themselves. And they'd pass the microphone down the chain. And I was like, you know, when you get to hear somebody talk on the mic, giving their little 15 second elevators pitch, as soon as the networking part got started, you could go, oh, I got to talk to that person and I got to talk to that person. I got to talk to that person, right? Right. But after that, after your first rainforest attendance, after that, you just disappeared into the crowd and nobody knew who you were. And I got to thinking, well, I did like podcasting, but wouldn't it be cool if we had a rainforest podcast? And I approached Mackenzie Bedford, who was the community manager at the time. And I said, Mackenzie, there should be like a rainforest podcast. And she goes, go for it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So that's the way it's going to be, right? Okay. And then I obviously I couldn't let them down. So I picked up my mics and I got started and I thought, how can I do this? So it's not so much work. And I thought, well, first of all, I'm just going to interview people and I'm just going to wing it. And secondly, I'm not going to be the host all the time. I want to do it as a community podcast so that the community are all having the opportunity to host. So I started every episode was a different host and we just kept rolling along. And this coming Tuesday will be, I think, episode 161. Whoa. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we have, I think at this point, I think we're at about 25,000 downloads altogether out of the 160 shows we have up. Wow. And we've got sponsorships and stuff every once in a while. Someone will sponsor a few episodes. So I'm able to actually pay someone to help me edit. So it's not a ton of work. Definitely not like a profit center for me. In fact, I definitely don't make a single penny off the show, but it's really nice to have a little bit of money to buy. Well, back in the day when we could meet in person, one of the sponsorships bought us equipment. So we had two microphones and a recorder and mic stands and all the stuff. And then after that, I've been using any money that comes in just to pay someone to help me edit. So that's kind of how that's been. And it's a lot of fun. Like if you have a consistent show like you guys are having now, it's pretty cool to be able to interview people and learn about new things. And I think one of the greatest benefits of the whole podcasting thing was that all of a sudden now you have access to people that you probably wouldn't even give you the time of day. Like I've contacted early on in the podcast, I would contact people that I just looked like a piece of dust blowing by in the wind. And then all of a sudden they're, oh yeah, I'd love to be on your show. It was really great because you build rapport and you build friendships and you're involved in the community. And in the fall of last year, we did a podcast awards show to kind of recognize all the volunteering that was going on. And man, that was fun. I 3D printed these awards, <laughs> a fist holding a microphone. They turned out really, really cool. And I made six of them. And then we had categories and we had like a people's choice awards and stuff. It was just a lot of fun. And I don't know if I'll do another award show, maybe sometime down in the future. But uh, yeah, that's kind of Kind of where I'm at with that. So I'm, I've done some work with Rainforest in the past, and I'm familiar with 
Rainforest. I was wondering for the listeners who aren't familiar with what Rainforest is, could you give us like the elevator <laughs> pitch for Rainforest? Yeah, sure. So the whole concept started, these two fellas, I can't remember their names, out of Silicon Valley wrote a book called The Rainforest, and then it had some sort of subtitle that I don't remember. But it was all about how different than most other parts of the world, entrepreneurship and business in Silicon Valley is so unusual because instead of people holding their cards close to their chest and you know, oh, you have to sign an NDA before this and that and the other thing. Everybody just kind of helps each other. It's like a hippie tribe of business owners all trying to help each other's businesses. They just get together, shake hands, and all of a sudden there's a new company and people are throwing money around like crazy. They sort of examined how that happened and how it all worked and stuff like that. And they put it into some practical advice into this book. Anyway, to make a long story shorter, this fellow named Brad Zumwalt here in Calgary, he's one of the leaders in the innovation ecosystem. He read the book and he talked to his buddy, Jim Gibson and said, Hey, Jim, you got to read this book. And the two of them got together and said, Holy moly, we got to do this here in Calgary. And they grabbed a whole bunch of the great minds and business leaders in Calgary. And they actually, with their own money, they actually brought everybody out to Banff and had this big event out at Banff at the hotel. And everybody got together and talked about how we could get rainforest going. One person, I can't remember who it was, came up with this idea of the rainforest contract, which is a 10 ways of being that help build an ecosystem. And so there's trust and leadership and giving back and 10 rules that all you have to do to join rainforest is read those rules and electronically sign on their website that you agree to abide by those rules. And it's all common sense rules. Nobody's trying to rip anybody off or whatever, but it ended up being that Rainforest itself is actually just a movement. There's no formal organization or any kind of societal incorporation or anything like that. It's literally just a whole bunch of people that came together to agree on how to behave. And probably one of the smartest things they did was they had this cadence of a weekly meeting for people to get together and network and share information. It's morphed in and out of different things over the years, but the general gist of it, especially now that we've been online for the past couple of years is they would talk about what Rainforest was, and then they would have a, a presentation. So like a successful company in Calgary that is doing something cool and they would present or they would do a walkthrough of their offices and then they would ask some questions and then they break off into breakout rooms and everybody would just network and try and help each other out and see how things are going. So it's a pretty remarkable way to network. The people are really great. Everybody that goes is just really, really awesome. You're encouraged to give back and try and help out long before you ask for anything. But obviously, they do want you to ask if you need something if, to ask for it, but you should be willing to give first. And that's just built an amazing community here in Calgary. And the growth of the ecosystem and the innovation ecosystem in Calgary, it's, it's just been a really big, big part of that. How did you come to be involved in tech in this rainforest ecosystem in the first place? Wow, that's a good question. Well, to make a long story short, I grew up in computers. I think my junior high was one of the first junior highs to have a computer lab in the library, and it was all TRS-80 color computers. <laughs> and so that's where I got broken in. 
But, you know, I went down the road of going down com- computer science road and I have my education in computer science, became a programmer. And then I started my own software company in 2003 and tried really hard to grow a business here in Calgary without any support from anywhere. You had the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, but there wasn't a lot else out there at the time. But over the years, things have grown and you had Startup Calgary and you had Calgary Economic Development and you had these accelerators. Oh yeah. Incubators or accelerators. Incubators and accelerators and stuff. So that's grown really significantly in the short term. Like it hasn't really been that long. And now if you were to start a business today, there's all kinds of resources. But one day, this must be about four years ago, something along those lines, my wife and I decided to start a company, a business. We were going to do a software application online. And she was doing some Googling and stuff and she learned about Rainforest. And she's like, why don't you come with me? And I'm like, okay. And from the first meeting, I was just, this is my people. This is where I belong. Realized that to become successful in an innovation kind of an ecosystem, you need to be involved. You need to be in there getting to know people and networking. And I'm like most other geeks, I'm totally introverted. Ah, Okay. But I've sort of trained myself over the years to sort of switch on and off my ability to be extroverted, to be able to be social and get out there and say hi to people and introduce people. And I've been invited to speak at events and things and host panels and other stuff like that over the years. And I've, I feel quite comfortable at it now, but in the beginning, it was really, 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 really hard. But yeah, so I probably ran three or four companies over the years. And I just found that you got to be in there and networking like crazy or it's it's makes it so much harder to do anything successful i have a kind of a similar story i guess yeah oh nice i started up my software company a little after you and i ran it for four years sean was actually a contractor he did some work for me shameless plug there (laughs) shameless plug is that how you met Uh, no we met through pixels and pints actually yeah ah yeah i just interviewed tony grimes on the rainforest podcast Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, he's a great guest to have on. He was great, yeah. 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 Yeah, because you guys had him on too, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah. That's right. Season one on the final episode, I believe, right? That was the season finale uh, for the last season. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, he's been a real community builder. I've been fortunate enough to be involved in Pixels and Pints since the very first one, actually, for 13 years now, I think. Oh, wow. And I keep bumping into some really great people in that community who always have really great stories to share. With this podcast, it's nice to kind of have a platform to get some of those stories out and to share them so that people can learn by experience. I'm pretty pro-education. I'm pretty pro-maintain your teachability throughout your entire career. And one of the things that I've always admired about you is your capacity to break things down into consumable chunks for people to come away with a really good understanding of some pretty complex theories. I was wondering if you have any tips or advice on educating your customers, educating a community. What's the secret there? How do you do what you do? Wow. Well, the secret is that I have a very, very short memory like flea, flea sized <laughs> memory. So the fact of the matter is that I can follow a, a train, like I can follow a process. Someone could be teaching something and I could be following all the way through, just understanding the whole thing. But when I get to the end, I don't remember any of it. <laughs> I mean, that I'm being a little bit harsh on myself, but 
it's not too far off the truth. And so I tend to write a lot of things down and I tend to go over things frequently, like, like more than once. Like if I find something interesting or something that intrigues me, then I dig in and I start looking for more information and, and figuring it out. But one of the things that I've found is because of, I guess, the way my brain works, I can't remember all the big words and all the stuff that makes it really, really complicated. So I just simplify it down into something that a five-year-old could understand. And so once I totally understand something, it's easier for me to explain to people if I leave out as many big words and complicated things as I can. And I know that a lot of times when you're a bit of a nerd and you're into technology and programming and those sorts of things, when you talk to a normal person, you tend to get excited about some of the cool inner workings of something and you just lose them right away. And so I just sort of assume the person has no background and no clue what I'm talking about. And I try and use metaphors and simple parallel examples to explain the concept rather than all the detail. Because if they're anything like me, they'll dig into the detail because they're interested in learning more. They just want sort of the general gist of it. And so whether I'm talking to clients or especially mentoring software developers, I find that when you hit them with all of the complexity, they just kind of get lost. Some people are really smart. Some people have photographic memories. Some people can just pick mm. up stuff like crazy, but the majority of people don't, right? Like they need to hear it multiple times. They need to get their hands on it and dig in more and read more. So if you just give them kind of the general idea, what is it about that topic that makes you feel fascinated or curious and then kind of address that and share that and then if you can get them excited or interested in it then they're going to ask more questions and want to dig into more things so does that make sense does that help answer the question so constantly review what you discuss with the other person or what findings you come out with at the end of the podcast say in your case in your episode review the important takeaways and help other people understand the general idea by taking like a few steps back every once in a while and saying, okay, for example, Rainforest is a community for entrepreneurs and startups to cross-pollinate, to share ideas and to build communities. Taking a step back helps a bit for people to understand the context and to understand why it's important because, you know, a lot of people listening to our podcast might have app ideas and they might want to help to get those app ideas out there and to do trial and error to get people to test those applications to go through the process of understanding what's involved in a startup and talking to people who have done it before so that they don't make the same mistakes that these other seasoned entrepreneurs may have made in the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like to say it's a collision space. It's where people and ideas collide and then have babies. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember so many situations of walking into co-working spaces and you see this sort of environment, this ambiance that often doesn't get captured well in podcasts or even in a lot of the tech banter that you might see on these kinds of podcasts that you're listening to now even. It's a very special atmosphere. And if you haven't attended, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have attended hackathons before, but I've attended many and there's that same ambiance, but it's even more strong, especially in those communities of startups where you get a very strong sense of community and you feel like you can ask these people any questions and they're open to talking to you. And that's something 
something that I've really missed. I was talking to Mike about this prior to us recording that I really do want to reconnect with some entrepreneurs and meet some people who really have a lot of drive because a lot of times I'll be hanging out with people or working with people, but they're just working with me on their nine to five jobs, but they don't have that passion. No offense to anybody who I work with. It's just that there's a special kind of passion, the drive that I find in those communities that it's hard to find in other places. And that's why I really enjoyed in the past in my experience going to those hackathons and going to those startup communities and going to there was a place in Australia called River City Labs in Brisbane. And I think it's very similar in the sense that it's a place for entrepreneurs and startup people to meet and share their ideas. And they charged the base fee. They had a co-working space as well. If anybody else remembers, I think actually Lighthouse, we were based out of there for a while, Al. You might have been, I don't know if you're working for Lighthouse at the time, but it was called WeWork. It was actually prior to WeWork yeah. uh, when yeah. Lighthouse was there. It was Campus. It campus. was called Campus. The yeah. co-working space was called yeah. Campus. Yeah. Right. And they had a bunch of, well, they had some places like that before the pandemic. I think things have changed since then. But I remember going in those places and, and feeling that ambience a little bit, not as strongly as I did in some other places. But still, I think that that takeaway there is for people who haven't had that experience of connecting with other people and it kind of removes that sense of loneliness that you get when you have your own app idea, but you can't share it. Who do you share it with? I'm really working yeah. on this really cool thing. If I post it to Hacker News and all of a sudden it blows up, well, now I'm I'm going to have to do all these things and maintain all the software because I want this launch to go well and I want to have an ICO or whatever. But if you don't talk to somebody about it and get their feedback, well, how do you intend to go viral or even have any success if you haven't talked to somebody who's done it before, right? Yeah, that support is really, really powerful. And, you know, you said something really interesting about getting out and talking to people and meeting with people. And I know that a lot of the tech culture is crazy introverted. Maybe people <laughs> listening to this who are like, yeah. yeah, it's not that easy for me to go out and meet people. Yeah. And, and I know that that can be a real big barrier. But, you know, perhaps I'll give you a little tip that sort of changed my life. I used to go out to networking events trying to figure it all out, trying to have a purpose, trying to figure out who I was going to talk to, trying to figure out what I was going to say. I had all these opening lines, icebreakers, kind of trying to remember. Yeah. And remember that part I said about having a shitty memory, be in a crowd of people and then everything would just leave. And I, I'd be like, uh, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't know what to say and I'd feel stupid. Well, as it turns out, one day I was standing there and I was trying to figure out who I should talk to. And this random person comes up to me and starts talking to me. And it was typically somebody who I wouldn't have seeked out to talk to, not for any particular reason whatsoever. But if you have a purpose for being there, you're thinking of talking, maybe I should get to know the people who are investors. Maybe I should be mm. talking to people who are entrepreneurs. And then there's this random person in the corner. I don't know who they are, but whatever. Well, they came over and they started talking to me. And they weren't an entrepreneur. They weren't an investor. In fact, they were what you might refer to as just kind of like the average Joe, but they were so fascinating, like their hobbies and their interests and things that they had done in their life. It was like super, super fascinating. And I remember leaving that particular networking event and thinking that I enjoyed talking to that person way more than I ever enjoyed talking to all the other people that I usually seeked out in a networking event. And then it dawned on me that every single human being on the planet is interesting. Everybody has 
a different experience. Your life story is like a fingerprint. Nobody on earth has ever done exactly what you've done in your life. Apparently, Mike and I had sort of similar career paths or whatever, but I bet you there was a ton of stuff there that wasn't even close. And the fact of the matter is, it's like a switch flipped in my head. And all of a sudden, I just thought to myself, people are cool. People are interesting. And so at the very next event, whoever was within 10 feet of me, I was talking to them and just getting to know them, you know, and I go, hey, how's it going? I didn't have any opening lines. I didn't have anything smart to say or whatever. I just said, hey, like, what are you all about? What do you do? Just trying to learn about them. And I totally forgot about myself. I wasn't pitching my stuff. And it was really fascinating because the room over three or four more networking events, I started to see people that I had great conversations with. And before long, I knew a whole bunch of people in the room and they were pulling people over and introducing them to me. And all of a sudden I was someone to talk to. I was one of the people that people wanted to get to know. And it was because I was genuinely curious for everybody that I got an opportunity to speak with. So I just wanted to pass that along because if you are an introverted person and you find being in a crowd and having to talk to other people really, really uncomfortable and complicated, just change your mindset. Just think about the fact that, okay, there's a person in front of you. What do you not know about that person? <laughs> like literally everything, right? So why don't you make a game out of it and see if you could learn as much as you can about that person in a short period of time and then move on to the next person and see how many cool, exciting lives you can discover that you never would have known before. That may help some of you when you have to be in a difficult networking event even works at family get togethers when there's the in-laws and the relatives there <laughs> that you don't really talk to that often right you can sit down and ask them questions about their lives and you know what people like talking about themselves it's generally easy to get a conversation going i was i was once giving some advice to someone about going out to their first pixels and pints and they were very nervous because they were kind of a, a junior developer and they didn't really have any strong opinions about anything, which is a great place to be in. I think that's a particularly strong attitude when you go into a networking situation. But they thought it was a weakness. I said, no, 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 that's great. You go in and just be curious and ask questions. And if you don't know anything about Golang, chances are you're going to meet somebody else who either A, doesn't know anything and is just as curious as you, or B, you're both going to meet somebody who knows a lot and has been working with for the last year or two. And then you get to ask them questions. And most importantly, I think the first rule of any networking thing is just to go and make friends. I have made so many friends in networking experience. Hi, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Because of Pixels and Pines, I've made a lot of friends because of Pixels and Pines. I've also made a lot of friends because of Startup Calgary and their wonderful ecosystem. And a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've met because of Startup Calgary, the ATB Entrepreneur Center has also been a really wonderful resource in that sense in, in meeting entrepreneurs. The co-working spaces that I've worked out of, I've met so many more entrepreneurs. And I think one of the strengths of entrepreneurs and networking events has always been meeting people who are just passionate about whatever problem it is that they're solving. And you don't need to know anything at all to hit it off with them as long as you recognize that you're all there to make friends and be curious about whatever it is that's going on in the world. Chances are, not only will you make a new friend, you'll learn 10 new things while you're there. Absolutely. Yeah. 
100%. The other thing is some of the greatest connections you have in your life, you usually met through somebody that you know. So the more people you know, the more likely you're going to get connected to people that you need to be connected to. Yeah. One of the nice things about Rainforest, you know, they're really trying to create a much more open atmosphere in that sense. I'm born and raised here in Calgary. Me too. And Calgary's always had a right on. <laughs> hey, oh, you're the other one. Oh, we're yeah. all here. Like that. <laughs> I think Calgary has always had a real strong networking atmosphere. And I think we've always had a real strong do-it-yourself kind of attitude as well. And those two sometimes come together really nicely. And sometimes they kind of conflict as well in the sense that you don't need somebody's help. You can do it yourself. But what I've discovered after having traveled is not all entrepreneur events are like they are here in Calgary, where we've had a real long opportunity to be a lot more open and to share in our ideas and to learn from one another's mistakes. In business, there's a concept called mastermind group. And it's great for businesses, but it's also great for software developers, especially junior developers. And it's basically just a study group for entrepreneurs. And so if I go through and we have a small group of five entrepreneurs, we meet once or twice a month, we can share whatever lessons we've learned from other sources and other books. But we also get to be a little bit more honest and open with a smaller group of people. I met the other four members of my mastermind group at a Startup Calgary event, at an ATB event, and at a hackathon, actually. And that's been really helpful in me understanding and growing my business, but it's also been really helpful in me understanding technology that I didn't see coming. So for example, going back a long time ago, eight years ago when I was still writing jQuery and PHP, Node.js was starting to pick up in popularity. And I thought, oh, I'm kind of curious about this. And I got to really follow the developer mindshare as more and more developers and Pixels and Pint started to pick up on Node.js and NoSQL. And I was like, this is really fascinating. And React was picking up some steam and more and more developer mindshare was going in this particular way. And I got to watch these things grow. And today, people are like generally curious about some other new technologies. And I'm kind of missing the conversations that we would have when everyone would get together in one room and you could have a conversation with these five different people about whatever they're most passionate about right now. And that was one way that I was actually able to pivot not only my career, but my company as well. It's a different tool stacks and get a little bit ahead. Where we're at now, we have a lot of different people with a lot of experience using a pretty hot tool stack. So for our web developers who are out there right now who probably have these voices online, giving them different pieces of advice, one of the best things is to get some real people face-to-face -face and have those conversations about whether or not they've actually used it and what is the reality like of using Rust, for example, or using Python, or using Node WebSockets, for example. These kinds of things have always been really helpful. So, hey, while we're at it, what are you most curious about as far as technology goes these days and software? Well, hate to throw the obvious buzzword around, but I'm really getting into blockchain. <laughs> Nothing too serious, but I, I recently joined a group that's putting together a distributed autonomous organization, which they refer to as a DAO. I've been doing cryptocurrency investing for a while now, a couple of years anyway, something like that. And I'm just really, really fascinated with that concept because so many applications are based on like a ledger, you know, recording transactions and stuff like that. And 
in the beginning, all the salespeople would go around and spout blockchain for everything, but it's actually not for everything. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that it shouldn't be used for, but there are some really fascinating use cases there. And you mentioned Rust because of the Ethereum blockchain being so cumbersome and expensive to use. Uh, I've been exploring a bit on Solana and Solana uses Rust to do their, we refer to the as smart contracts in, mm, Ethereum, right. in the Ethereum world, but in Solana, they're called programs, which is kind of cool. Same thing though, same concept. So I've been kind of exploring that a little bit. Not, I don't have a ton of time to hack around here and there, but I do every once in a while, I do get to grab the keyboard and start playing around and, and that's one of the things that I'm definitely fascinated by. So to learn more about Solana, where do you go? Do you join communities in Calgary related to blockchain? Or do you find other Discord communities and ask questions to people you might meet online? Basically the latter of the two. I don't have a ton of time to, to attend every event. My big thing is daytime. I'm free. Evenings, I'm not. By free, I mean, I have lots of other meetings and stuff, but I do have the ability to go and attend events. Whereas in the evenings, I'm a little more focused on my family and things that I need to do for myself and my house and stuff. But there's so much information online, like whatever you want to learn, there's usually user groups, you, you mentioned discord, obviously anything to do with coding or technology, there's discord groups for it. There's lots and lots of helpful YouTube videos on people showing you how to build this and that in whatever technology you're interested in. And, you know, Mike's talking a bit about junior developers. When you get more to an intermediate to senior level, you have sort of a different outlook or a different view of things. You start to compare what's different about it because the whole thing is new. When you're a junior developer, the whole thing's new. When you have a lot of experience and you've played with a lot of different languages over the past 25 years, in my case, it's kind of, okay, what's different about this than the language that I'm currently working, you know, very versatile in. That's where I'm at is just playing around a little bit, trying to look at what somebody does and then trying to do as much as I can on my own. And Mike didn't use these words, but I'm a lifelong learner, which is what you kind of need to be as a software developer. I used to joke with people like when you become an accountant, you learn how to be an accountant and then you just do accounting for the rest of your life tax laws change and stuff like that, but you kind of know how to do accounting, right? Software development, even the language you love completely and drastically changes within a couple of years. It's a new language. Let's face it. Maybe the syntax is the same, but you're learning a completely new language all the time. So it's just a matter of getting to that point where you're familiar enough with one thing. You can do almost anything in one thing, and then you just look for what's different in the new thing. And that helps sort of assemble it together. But hands-on is kind of the most important piece. You just have to get in and do something. I'm getting pretty close to the point where I don't need to learn language number 26. <laughs> I feel so ashamed that I was talking to Mike about how he, you know, one of our more popular recent episodes, we talked about Python with Trey Hunter, who is a really knowledgeable person on Python. And I was saying that one of the reasons I left one of my former jobs is because I was forced to use Python. Not because I don't like Python, but because I didn't want to work in Python. That's not what I wanted to do. I, maybe it was also that they wanted me to write like tests and do like specific kinds of like QA kind of tests that I what didn't want to be doing. I wanted to be writing features, not writing tests all the time and writing tests for code that was already written. So it's still writing code, but it's not the same, right? But anyway, 
I think the point I'm trying to make is that there's a difference between learning a new language and learning a new language for a different purpose than what you're originally tasked with doing in say a business or a company or a professional setting. So finding that spot where you're passionate about the topic or you're passionate about the thing that you're trying to do, it doesn't matter what language you use, like whether it's blockchain or Solana or whatever, as long as you're passionate about the idea of blockchain, I think it's totally fine if you use a different language like Rust or whatever. It's a problem in my experience when you find yourself tasked with achieving a goal that you're not very particularly interested in, right? Then I think you have more of a conflict of interest there. I agree. It's no fun being forced to do something that you really have no interest in. And it's unfortunate, but it's sort of like a fact of life that new developers typically are going to be writing tests and they're typically going to be learning other people's code and looking for bugs and trying to fix things rather than create something new, which is unfortunate, but the way things are. But, you know, to your point, I actually listened to that episode. And one of the main reasons I listened to that episode is because I don't know Python. And I don't want to say yet because I don't yet know why I need to know Python. I have no real major interest to learn how to do data science or be part of that community. It doesn't interest me. And so why would I learn a new language? Well, in the case of Solana, I may have to learn Rust. I start playing with that a little bit, but I may have to learn Rust if I want to write programs on the Solana blockchain. But aside from that, what other languages do I need to know in order to accomplish things? I'm a C-sharp.net developer. I've been for years because of Lighthouse Labs and because of now Inception U, where I also work, I've had to learn JavaScript much, much more than I've ever had to know it before. So I'm sort of like, okay, well, this is cool. And it's kind of neat, some of the stuff that you can do with JavaScript. And it's kind of a nice language. But ultimately, I could do pretty much anything in C Sharp that I could do in JavaScript and vice versa. So now I, I'm kind of well-versed in two languages, not to mention all the, other, all the other languages that I've learned over the years, you know, I was a Delphi, Delphi, Delphi developer, however you want to oh, say it. Oh, Delphi. I loved yeah. Delphi. That was my favorite language. I've heard good things about it. I used to know in college, I learned COBOL and I'm glad I never had to use it. Wow. Um, I, I know how to program <laughs> in Microsoft Access, but I will never go near it again with a 10 foot pole unless my life depends on it. I, I've learned C, I've learned C++, I've learned so many of these languages, but it always comes down to why are you learning a new language? There needs to be a reason there. I also had to learn Power Builder because the company I worked for when I came out of college, they were a Power Builder shop. And so I had to learn it. And that's actually coincidentally where I learned Delphi because I basically, as sort of almost like a personal project, it was like, is it okay if I do some work in this new language called Delphi? Cause it seems to be popular. And my boss was like, yeah, yeah, that's okay. So I actually wrote like back before web servers were really, really popular. I actually wrote a, a web server in Delphi. I wasn't even on the team. The company was writing air traffic control software for transport Canada, and they were writing it in power builder. It actually couldn't handle it. Like the messages were coming in so fast that PowerBuilder couldn't handle it. So because I learned Delphi, I ended up writing a DLL that actually processed the messages from Transport Canada fast enough that I could provide a little queue for PowerBuilder to just kind of pull the messages out as it needed it. And then I managed to kind of save the whole project. 
And so that was kind of a really interesting situation, right? Like languages have purposes. And so if you're really into machine learning and data science, you probably want to learn Python. If you're into blockchain, you probably want to learn Rust or I can't remember the name of the other one that's very popular in blockchain, but Solidity maybe? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> C-based. Yeah. You probably want to learn something like that if you're going to really go down the blockchain road. If you're going to work with Oracle and SQL Server and that, you're going to need to know SQL really well. They have purposes. And if you're not going in that direction, because people ask me all the time, what language should I learn? Well, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Like, what are you going to do? Like, what gets you fired up? Even if it's you're doing X for work, what fires you up over here? Because you can learn more than one language. But yeah, to your point, I've never had a need to learn Python. I get it. Like I get how it works and I kind of understand why it's powerful, but I just have no need for it in this particular point in my life. Here's a here's an interesting question from entrepreneur and software. Do you think entrepreneurs should learn how to write code? You know, it's funny you say that because I just read an article yesterday or the day before that said, you don't need to be technical to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> so riffing on that a little bit, and actually, I think you had said also earlier that people can create a company and do everything themselves, or, or it wasn't in those exact words, but you were kind of like, you can do it yourself. Well, oftentimes, running a business by yourself is extraordinary diff extraordinarily difficult and more difficult than it needs to be. If you can find a co-founder or two that you really gel with and you can come up with the appropriate legal agreements to make sure nobody ends up screwing anybody else, that symbiosity, is that a word? That, that, that people can have their strengths and then come together and be much more successful than they could have been on their own. I think that as an entrepreneur, you need to be very, very good at business. If you're a programmer and you can write the entire application yourself and then release it to the world, how do you know that the world wants it? How do you know that the world is going to need it and pay for it and want to use it? A lot of that comes from business, right? And so business, you do a, a business model canvas or whatever other kind of business planning you want to do. You want to make sure that you've spoken to your end client and not just one, but as many as you can. You need to have a client before you build a product. Uh, and, and with software, that's even more important. A lot of times as developers, we're like, oh, I got this great idea and I'm going to go out and I'm going to code day and night and day and night and I'm going to have this thing and I'm going to put it up there in the world and then nobody uses it. And you're like, what's wrong? It's a great idea. Well, did you test the market? Did you figure out whether you actually have a client base who's willing to pay for it? Do you have any marketing experience? Do you know how to get to your ideal client? You know, like there's so much more to business than just being able to build a product and put it up on the internet for people to use. And I think that if I was by myself running a company, I would rather be a really, really strong business person than a really, really strong technical person because I can always partner or hire or whatever a technical person to get something done. Obviously, it's going to cost me money, but the ideal situation is Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, right? You got an absolute genius business person with an absolute genius technical person. And I know Steve Jobs was also a, a programmer and a technical person, but not like Steve Wozniak, right? So that was like kind of like a match made in heaven. And I think a lot of the successful companies in the world are led by really, really strong business people 
who were partnered with really, really strong technical people. It's a pretty common question and whether or not entrepreneurs should know how to code. And But it's not a common question to ask if coders should know anything about business. Aha. And so nice to, to reverse it, I'm going to ask if you think that people who are writing code should understand business. Well, I'll go back to this old saying I heard once, and that was A students teach B students to work for C students. <laughs> okay. And so what, what are you? Are you somebody who's very academic and wants to go all the way to your PhD and then work at a university teaching other people? Because then you don't really need to know anything about business. You just need to be really, really good at whatever it is you're becoming a PhD in. If you're a B student, your goal in life is to go work for a big company that gives you job security and benefits and a pension. And not that any of that even really exists anymore, but let's pretend it still does. You want to go out there and you want to get a job for somebody and you want to work really, really hard. And then five o'clock, you just want to shut down and go home and forget about work, right? C students are entrepreneurs, right? We are out there changing the world, taking our visions and our ideas and going out there and making something happen and getting everybody on board and wanting to do amazing things. If you're a C student, yeah. If you're a, like a programmer, but you're entrepreneurial minded, you're going to want to learn business. And one of the best ways to do that today is go down to Platform Calgary and take what used to be called the Junction Program. I'm not sure what it's called today. I know they changed the name of it. But there's those sorts of opportunities. There's also, um, it's called MindFuel. They have a free mini kind of a program that takes you through getting your business developed. But if you don't have that ability to think with a business mind, I think that would be a great thing to learn. Learn the very, very basics of proper accounting, being able to balance your accounting and understand what's going on with incorporation. And if you're going to have partners and stuff. You have to understand a little bit about cap tables and how that all works and then dilution of shares, values and stuff like that. Those sorts of things you're going to want to learn about. And if you just approach it with curiosity rather than dread, then I think if you're a programmer and you have the ability to learn enough about business, you're going to be quite successful. I think that's probably one of the better ways to go is because you could go and program the application by yourself if you needed to, right? rather than paying tons and tons and tons of money to get somebody else to do it just because you know business, but you don't know how to program. But I think either way, it's important to have both skills. When you said A students teach B students to have C students do. To work for C students. <laughs> I had imagined the A students as the entrepreneurs because those are the people that get the A's from somebody else's work. They have other people do the, the work for them. and. When I do think of entrepreneurs, I think of outsourcing a lot. I think of finding somebody who can do the work that you would be doing for you and then starting a business to capitalize on that literally and figuratively and take advantage of other people's expertise rather than sitting on the end, as in on the C student who may not achieve the highest goals, but then as a team or as a group, those B students can pick up the slack, so to speak, and make those C students work A level or the top quality that the business expects. Well, I guess it depends when you say A, B, and C, whether you're talking about quality or marks. Uh, I was referring to marks. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, the people that get straight A's in class are going to become professors, and the people that get B's are going to work for the people that get C's. Because ah, okay. 
If you look at a lot of the older, older companies that have been around for a long time, especially a lot of the oil companies and stuff like that, the people that started them, like a lot of them may not have even had their high school education, but they knew what they were doing, right? They were working on the rigs or they were doing some kind of hard labor service business. And then they decided, you know what? I see a hole here. I see something that could solve a lot of people's problems. And then they started a company and then they hired really, really smart people to help them make it happen. And then now they're multi-million dollar CEOs of big companies. When I went through school, I got some A's in certain classes, but on average, I was a C, like C, C plus at the most, you know, I wasn't focused on marks. I was focused on the information and figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. I remember at Mount Royal College, I got into the Computer Science Society and I was hanging out in there. And one semester, I ended up becoming president of it. And it was just that whole community thing. We are seeing a lot of people establishing a new position in the company of community manager or community person. That's a fairly new concept. I mean, even though there was the social media expert or the person that was involved with communications and getting the word out there to people. But now there's really a focus on community and it's both internal and external. A lot of people are really putting a lot of effort, time and money in, into building communities around their corporate product or service. Some of the most successful companies have these massive communities around them, right? People are willing to go and have a battle just like Calgary versus Edmonton hockey <laughs> about a product, right? My product's better than your product. And how you build that is understanding community. It's not as organic as people might believe. It's actually set up to be that way. That was a weird tangent, wasn't it? <laughs> That's a good tangent. I like the tangent. It's usually the tangents where that are where all the good juicy thoughts go, right? I, I want to ask you because you talk a lot here about curiosity. And one thing that I've wondered over the past is what helps to drive your curiosity on a given topic? I know plenty of developers that I've worked with. I don't want to give out names. It's not important. I know developers who didn't seem to have curiosity. They didn't really care. They would tell me that, oh, well, I don't need to know about that other person's job or their concerns or their thoughts on politics or anything like that. And sometimes I'd bring up, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I would ask questions. I was curious. And a lot of times I would get a cold shoulder or I would get dismissed in favor of keeping things separate about not diving in too much. You don't need to know that. That doesn't concern you right now. That's none of your business. And maybe that has something to do with the kind of workplace that I worked at. But my question to you is, where do we get that innate curiosity? Does it come naturally to us? Is it part of being human? And if we don't feel that curiosity right now, what can we do to unearth, if it isn't natural, what can we do to unearth that curiosity to find ourselves more interested in other people rather than just finding ourselves interested in our own selves and pursuing our own goals. I really, really love that question, Sean. Here's the thing. I look at curiosity as it being your inner child. When you're a kid, I think, honestly, I think society and education literally trains us out of our inner child, our curiosity. You're told to toe the line, dress a certain way, do this certain thing, don't ask too many questions, do your job, work hard, you know, that kind of thing. I have two boys, they're both, well, one's just about 18 and the other one's 19. When they were little, and I'm sure most parents know this, is like, 
daddy, daddy, why is this? Daddy, daddy, what's that? Daddy, daddy. You know, like it just, it's like 3 million questions every hour. And you find yourself going, dude, just stop. Why are you asking so many questions? Can't you just relax? Can't you just be quiet for a minute? Give daddy a break. And I think that's the start of shutting down the inner child as my boys got older. And and I'm not saying that I repressed them because I was actually more the opposite. I was like, what interests you? You know, why does that interest you? Like, you know, let's go to the store and see if we can find some more stuff that would help you with that Mm -hmm. interest, whether it was music or this or that or the other thing. But I think as they go through school and get older and then they get judged by their friends and their peers and their teachers and stuff, you start to see them evolve over time. And I've had to spend a considerable amount of effort to try and get them to come out of their shells over these last few years because they used to be so outgoing and fun. And my younger son was just a character, like all the time he was cracking everybody up. And now he's the most quiet, reserved person. Like you ask him a question and the answer is like, I don't know. He just doesn't talk much anymore. And my older son, he's self-studying to become a prop master, like a set director in movies and stuff. But he's a really, really good author. And I've had to work with him, really, really work with him to get him to come out of his shell and do some networking and stuff. Because whether you want to be an author or a film director or a computer programmer or whatever, you have to be comfortable meeting people and communicating. And if you're just super in quiet by yourself, you can only get so far. And if you land a really great job and you do really, really great at your job, then you can become successful. But it's way easier to become successful if you're in the community, you're out there helping And when you need something, people come and help you back because you were always there for them. So I'm trying to share that wisdom with him and get him out and going. But I think, honestly, if you want to get back to that inner child, get back to that inner curiosity, don't focus on what you know or what you need to know. Focus on what you don't know and what you want to know. And so pick a topic, any topic, and just think, okay, What do I know about this topic? Okay, whatever. What don't I know about this topic? And people too. If you see a person and you're like, okay, what do I not know about this person? And then dig in, figure it out. If something doesn't interest you, move on. And it's not always easy to do, but if you're in a job that you hate and you're doing stuff that you don't like doing, find another job. Pivot your career. There's tons of people these days that are pivoting from whatever they were doing before. I know in the Lighthouse Labs, you know, Sean and Inception U, some of the people we have in there have been like a senior mechanical engineer or a senior petroleum technologist or something for like 10, 15 years. And they're pivoting their careers into software development. It's never too late. You deserve to live your life in a way where you're excited and happy to go to work excited and happy to wake up in the morning and get to something. And whether that's being an entrepreneur or whether that's being a programmer, whether that's being some biotech genius, or maybe it's being a mechanic or being a massage therapist, something has to excite you to wake you up in the morning and get you going. You kind of owe it to yourself. I recently turned 52 and I don't really look at age all that much. I actually feel a hell of a lot younger than I am, but you still have that question in the back of your mind, like, what have I accomplished so far? 
where am I going? What am I going to do? Like, how does the rest of my life look? I wouldn't want to be in a career that I hate or a job that drags me down every day just because it pays well. Previously in my life, I barely would even think of leaving a job. If I had a job, I was there. I was dedicated. I was going to retire with that company kind of thing. And even if I didn't really like the job, if the money was good, I was like, okay, well, let's just do this. Well, over the past maybe 10 years or maybe a little under that, I've started to look at life differently. I started to say like, am I really happy? Do I really enjoy being here? And yeah, all jobs have some parts of it that suck, but the general gist of wanting to get up in the morning and get to work because you're excited. If you don't feel that, you're not on the path that you should be on. And I know this is changing from (laughs) a, a cool technical kind of discussion to a philosophy discussion, but I'm pretty passionate about people doing things that they love doing because I've actually seen change. I've actually seen people transform their lives and they're just like different people. It's just like so amazing to see people that have actually gone through that transformation. Wow. So I think to summarize that, if I get this correct, find something that you're passionate about and use that to fuel your curiosity. I think that's a great summary. I talk too much. (laughs) I'm trying to go back to what we said earlier to our listeners that you were saying yourself (laughs) is summarize as much as you can so that people can follow because who knows, maybe somebody skips across to an hour and nine minutes into our podcast and they want to know what's actually happening at this point. What has developed from this conversation? And I think that it's good to consider all people from different backgrounds. And that brings me to one of the things I was thinking about when you spoke earlier about finding something you're passionate about. I can remember when I started my first job as a developer, I wasn't even a developer, but I remember getting basically squashed and told that I shouldn't be asking questions. And anytime I would be curious about a given topic, oh, how does that work? How does dot hide work in jQuery? He would say, go Google it. Why are you asking me this question? Just Google it. (laughs) And that's the kind of response that I got from somebody who I looked up to, from a mentor, so to speak. And I can almost surmise quite accurately that a lot of developers in junior positions might feel the same way. They might feel that urgent sense to Google things before they ask a question. And one of the things that I've learned, I think, over the years is to Google, but to Google to a point where you know the surface level idea, and then you can ask and you can form your question. I can remember as well going to presentations and hackathons where they would talk about a certain technology. And I was curious about that technology. Maybe it's Rust or or smart contracts and Solidity. Well, I don't know much about Solidity or smart contracts, but maybe I can look that up and maybe I can learn a few things about it. Oh, well, how do you handle concurrency and how does that work? We can have that question in a more properly formed fashion before we actually form the question. We're still curious, but we're finding a way to hone in on that curiosity and get to the answer that we want. I think that's the takeaway that I would get from that. And also to find something you're passionate about. Most importantly, finding something that you can share with other people and that passion and that will fuel your questions and your curiosity, as opposed to hoping that you can somehow use some tactic to unearth your curiosity. If you're not doing something you love, then how do you expect to be curious in the first place? And I just want to reiterate what you said, because I really, really like what you said. You can't always ask the question because you're too lazy to go look it up. So do your part. If you're curious about something, do your part by going out and figuring out what you can, and then go ask someone. Because I think especially just because we're talking about blockchain, I'm kind of at the point now where I understand a lot, but I have questions that can't be answered 
by Googling. I want to know why you do something or why you would do this over that. And in order to get that, I need to talk to people who are actually very experienced and have been through the trenches and understand it to the level where they can go, oh yeah, well, actually this is this and that's that. And that's kind of why, you know, and then you can have an intelligent conversation. If you walk up to somebody who's been doing blockchain programming and stuff like that for like five years or something, and you're like, what's blockchain? Yeah. <laughs> that's just annoying. It's just like, what? <laughs> if you formulate your question into something more specific, like, you know, you're going up to your doctor and you're saying, I've noticed that I have this patch of red skin and I'm just curious about why that skin is different than this other skin. Then your doctor is going to be very interested in talking to you. But I like what you said there, Sean, and I think it's really, really valid when you are a junior developer, a new developer, it's important to take a stab at it first. There's tons and tons of resources out there. Take a stab at it, have conversations with other junior developers that you know and you work with. And then once you've sort of formulated a basic understanding and there's pieces that you haven't been able to plug together, then go talk to somebody who's more senior. And that conversation will go way better and be way more valuable to you than, hey, just go Google it. It's all out there, right? Seems like there's two conversations that I have when people find out that I write code for a living. And one is, I have this great idea for an app. <laughs> Do you think it's any good? And can you partner with me to make this happen? And the other one is, oh, really? Well, I was thinking about getting into that as a career and coming back around to your idea of shifting careers into something that you love. And that's kind of where our, I kind of fall apart a little bit because I love it. I've always loved it. I've been writing code since I was 10. I love doing this thing. It's always been, if I do this, what's going to happen? Like, what kind of effect can I have on a system by making a change? The curiosity has always been there. It's always driven me to do this. And it grew and it grew to the point where if I create this entire application, what kind of effect will this entire application have on the organization that employs me to affect change in their organization? And I don't know how to approach it to somebody who is looking at getting into software as a career choice. Do I want to be a professional software developer? I don't know how to answer that question. I know Sean's story. We've interviewed Sean on his show. <laughs> we, we've gone through his story. I think we have a glimpse at, uh, at what got you started there, Al. Do you have any advice for anybody who might be listening this podcast and thinking about maybe this is the shift that they want to make? Is there some advice or questions that you might have to help them come to that conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to interject with a little bit of other information there before we dig too much into that. And that's that I've been talking to people for a long time. While I was general manager of Lighthouse Labs, I spent quite a bit of time talking to people about taking the program. And now with Inception U, I talk to a lot of people about taking the program. What I like to say to people is, if you're young and you're fresh out of high school or whatever, if you have the ability mom and dad's paying for it, or you have scholarships or whatever it is, go into university or whatever and take computer science. And then you have that ability inside of the education system to kind of navigate around and maybe you take some courses and you realize you love something and then you kind of head down that direction. So that's kind of the typical way of doing things. Now, if you are already an educated person or you already have been working for quite some time 
maybe you're a chef, maybe you're an auto mechanic or a construction worker or something like that. And now you want to pivot your career into tech. The most important thing is that you understand what you're getting into. So my recommendation is go online, go to free code camp or Udemy or whatever, take a basic course on JavaScript, understand what programming is, be able to go, I get this. You don't need to be able to write incredible software all by yourself or anything like that, but you need to understand what it is. Because if you can do some really, really basic, really simple programming, like a little bit of node or, or something like that, and you understand what it is and you can go, okay, I could see myself doing this. This is fun. I was watching the video and I saw what the person did. And then I like tried it and I was able to go and change this variable and something else happened. And like, it was fun. It was cool. I really, really dug it. Then I would say, get yourself into a boot camp. Go to Lighthouse Labs or go to Inception U. Get yourself in a boot camp. In Lighthouse Labs, you got, I used to tell people, say goodbye to your mom, your dad, your friends, your dog for three months, and you'll come out of it as a developer. With Inception U, it's six months, so it's a little bit more spread out. You don't have to say goodbye to everybody, but you do have to focus. But then you're done. You can transform your career very, very quickly. And I know a lot of people have arguments about whether a computer science degree has so much more value than a person who took a boot camp. But let me tell you, I've met some incredible programmers that could program circles around me that never took anything. They were self-taught. I remember I was at a, a hiring kind of event and I was chatting with some of the people who had boosts there. And I went up to this guy and I was chatting with them about their product. They built this incredible product. It was extremely popular. They were making tons of money. And I was chatting with the guy and he was the VP of technology for that company. And I'm like, so how did you get started? And he goes, oh, I just, one day I just logged on and, uh, and I found this thing on the web and then I started following a trail and I just found it cool and I started playing around. He literally never took one single course his entire life. He just figured it all out. And now he's a VP of technology of this giant company. And he probably knows more about, I think that company was doing, I think they were Java, but he knew more about Java than I probably know about any language I've ever used. And he was self-taught. So don't ever say that you need to have a university degree to be of any value to anybody because that is total and other BS. What you need is passion. You need that willingness to learn. And I'll tell you one thing, you may know big O notation inside and out, but how often do you actually use it when you're actually writing software? You don't, right? Computer science theory, which is what you spend a lot of time learning in university, is not incredibly valuable in the average day-to-day -day writing of software. I tell people when they're learning, think of a black box. You're given inputs. Your black box is supposed to do something to that information and then produce some output. Does it matter if that interior of that black box is written in the most elegant and most beautiful code that anyone's ever seen? Or does it matter that the inputs came in, you did what you were supposed to to the inputs and you gave the outputs that you were supposed to give? The fact of the matter is, if you get a bunch of people who can write all the black boxes that you need, and then you have someone who can assemble those black boxes together, 
you have a piece of software that will satisfy the client and the customers and the users and be able to change the world. And if you happen to write incredibly beautiful, elegant code inside of your little black boxes that you can brag to everybody about how awesome your code is, hey, good for you. If you're a systems programmer, if you're working for Atabotics and you're writing code that actually directly hits hardware and it has to be the smallest, most fastest code you could possibly write, yeah, that university degree is probably going to be a benefit to you. But if you're writing applications for finance or Airbnb or <laughs> skip the dishes or whatever, if you're writing software for a web-based application or a mobile application, as long as you get better at writing code every time you write, as long as you improve and you learn from things that were difficult or mistakes that you made in the past, within three or four years, I don't think you'd be able to tell a bootcamp grad and a university grad, I don't think you'd be able to tell a lot of difference between software that they write. And so I think that's really important to understand. If you already have a career, if you have a degree in mechanical engineering, and you want to pivot to become a software developer, don't waste $90,000 in four years of your life going to university because it's not going to give you the benefit that you wish you could get. Because remember this, if Bob and Sally take their computer training at the same time, but Bob goes to university and Sally takes a boot camp, by the time Bob gets out of university, Sally's already been programming for three years. Think about that. Bob can come out and talk about how great his computer science theory is and how he deserves a little bit more money because he's a university graduate. But Sally's already been in the industry for three years and she's got way more experience and knowledge about computer programming than that guy coming out of university, guaranteed, hands down. As you could tell, I'm a little bit passionate about this topic. But yes, that's kind of how I wanted to address your question there, Mike. That's a great way to go about it. I really like the advice to get online and do some free learning just so you know what programming is because I don't think people really understand what the day-to-day you sit down at your desk at your new job. What is it that they're expecting you to do? I mean, A, yeah, you're working inside. B, it's a desk job. C, it's not like you're spraying foam insulation with a mask on doing heavy, hard labor all the day. (laughs) Well, you might have a mask on, but <laughs> but you might, <laughs> you might have a mask on. Only during the apocalypse, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people really understand what the day-to-day tasks are. And I don't think people generally really understand how challenging or how exhausting it can be to write code for eight hours a day. I've always been lucky in the sense that this is one of those things that I love. This is one of those things that I get to go to work. And it doesn't really matter what the problem is, there's going to be a new problem. Progress in software development often looks like a new error code. It may be, It's not working yet, but at least I have a new error code. <laughs> I don't know if people are prepared mentally for how challenging it can be to try to fix the code that you wrote. Well, let's be honest. You solve most coding problems while you're in the shower or sitting on the toilet. <laughs> you know, it's not when you're sitting in front of your keyboard. <laughs> this is a true story. I think every job is different. Every job has a different work style, different people. And that's the bottom line, I think, that we often forget. We can classify this is what you're getting into as software development. But That doesn't account for the differences in work styles, the differences in attitudes towards it. 
that's why whenever I apply for a job, I ask, who will I be working with? And what kind of things do those people take really seriously? What's the team passionate about? And if I can understand the passions of the team, then I can understand if I will find myself passionate about those things as well, rather than, well, okay, it's a nine to five job. You're sitting at a desk. That's one version of it. There are other companies where you might have to work in the Singapore time zone and you might have maybe just a few overlapping hours where you have the most crucial hours of your day. You have to be on call. You have to be able to take meetings for those hours or like in my job, complete remote work. You don't ever have to worry about coming into an office. You just sit at your desk and you don't even need to sit at your desk. You can go and have a shower (laughs) at 10 a.m. if you want and come back to a conversation when you feel more refreshed and you've had some time to think about the problem. But every workplace has a different mindset and a different philosophy. And so I think that's the one missing part that I would add into that idea to understand what you're getting into, have a conversation with your potential employer or Talk with people who have already worked in the industry and get their ins and outs of what it's like to work in their shoes. And then you can sort of sum things up and think, okay, this person works on a standing desk. This person works as a working nomad in Bali and takes his two hour breaks to go running and go to the gym. And then this other person goes and I don't know, works in a co-working space. Like (laughs) there's so many different versions of software development, but each one has its pros and cons. The fact is that every situation is different and finding that is important if you're considering entering the software development industry. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's probably universal that we're all jealous of the guy in Bali. I, I don't know. I've, I've been watching quite a few videos thinking about, yeah, maybe that's the lifestyle I want. I've always kind of gravitated towards that nomadic work life balance, but that's for another episode. I think that the reality that you see on Instagram and YouTube is very different from the one that you would get if you actually spoke to that person and if they felt open to talking to you, I think. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people can make entering the web development field is having this stereotype in their head of what it's like to work in the industry. Whereas I think one of the things that Rainforest Alberta offers, as well as many of the other communities in Calgary and Alberta, they offer that opportunity to actually pick people's brains and talk to them and get to know their quote unquote personhood, what made them decide to go into software engineering. And then you can start to answer that question a little bit more. We only have one piece of that answer, or maybe two or three, depending on the way you see it here in this podcast. But there's so many more nuances and so many more other facets to why people enter software development. And exploring those really helps to understand, I think, whether it makes sense for other people to enter. And of course, it always goes down to the other person's perception of, does that make sense? Is this something I'd be willing to go through? Or does it make sense for me to enter this field right now? That's a really, really good way to put it. And I think that ultimately, everybody has different preferences. Everybody has personal likes and dislikes. And that passion, I think we keep going back to the concept of passion. If you decide to learn how to become a programmer because there's lots of jobs and there's lots of money in it, you're likely going to be miserable if you're not passionate about problem solving and bug hunting and banging your head against the wall for hours and hours and hours and then going, oh my God, I had a comma in the wrong place. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the life of a developer, right? You don't just know everything. You don't just sit there and go, oh, okay, let's just do this, right? Holy crap, wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) It's not like that. It's like, oh, why isn't this working? Or, oh, how do I do that? I don't know. Little tidbit of advice for newer developers is you can't eat an elephant in one bite. You have to eat it one small piece at a time, right? So same thing when learning programming. 
break it down into the tiniest little pieces that you can understand or that you can figure out. And then once you've accomplished all the little pieces, all of a sudden you'll be done and it'll be a big elephant. Going with that metaphor of eating, I think one of the more popular adages goes like this. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't take on more responsibility than you realistically can take on. And I think that's part of the mantra here of should I enter web development? Well, not should, but do I want to? Is web development a field that interests me? And how much evidence do I want before I decide that this makes sense? And I wonder in your mind, Al, at what point does a potential prospective developer say, yes, I want to pursue this and I've determined that I have the finances that this might interest me. Is it just go full force and see what happens? How much confidence do you think a prospective web developer, somebody who might enter the industry, how much confidence do you think it makes sense to have before they enter? That's a really interesting question because even people that graduate from boot camps or even university for that matter, they have imposter syndrome and they don't necessarily feel confident or comfortable in what's about to be their new role. I want to say to your point about getting there and not biting off more than you can chew, not going too far. I do want to kind of edge that a little bit and say, you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So don't bite off more than you can chew, but be on the border, be challenged, be at a point where you're feeling uncomfortable and you need to struggle a little bit so that you can grow. Great example here. I love to use examples and metaphors. My buddy, Chris and I used to play racquetball a lot. I never got better at racquetball a little bit because you just, you play a lot and you get better. What he would do is he would look at the, the guys in the next court and he would see them just killing each other. And he'd go, hmm, interesting. And then in the locker room or whatever, he'd start talking to them. And next thing you know, he's like, Wednesday at lunch, he's with me. And then Thursday and Friday at lunch, he's with them. All of a sudden, like within a week, I couldn't even touch him in the court. Like he was killing me. And the reason is because, well, this particular character, his particular character was, I'm going to go and work with something. Like I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to go work with people who are way better than me so that I can grow. And I think that that's a great philosophy to have in life. Like you said, don't bite off more than you could chew, but your mouth should be pretty full <laughs> and you should be chewing hard at it. You shouldn't be comfortable. And whenever you're feeling like you're inside your comfort zone, that's when you should know that you need to step it up a bit. What about for somebody who just wants a nine to five job where they can kind of coast? Would you advise that they enter web development? Maybe it's not from a passion perspective, but they want to find something that they can do more reliably and comfortably without going out of their comfort zone. Would you shift their mindset towards the passion still? Or does that still have a role to play in the whole career decision for those people? That's a really fascinating question, Sean. There are people that earn money, go home, go back the next day, earn money, go home. And if they're comfortable with that, if that's what they feel life should be like, and they're cool with it, then I mean, who am I to tell them that they're wrong? If you're decent at programming and you can get a job somewhere and just hide in the corner and just work your nine to five and go home, then all the power to you. I don't personally know any of those positions that exist because in any 
computer programming situation I've ever been in. It's been heads down. Let's get our minds together. Let's whiteboard this. Let's figure this out. You guys go pair program. Let's figure this out. We have no idea how to do this, but we have to have it by next Tuesday. Like it's not a coasty kind of a career. I think maybe be an accountant, (laughs) pick it on accountants, but honestly, like go work in a warehouse, something where it's the same thing every day, you figure it out and you know how to do it and you're good to go and you can just do it every day. Go do that. If you want to be challenged every second of your life and grow and problem solve and struggle and beat your head against the wall and feel those highs and lows of not being able to make it happen and then figuring it out and feeling like a god for a few minutes. If that's what you want your life to be like, then be a programmer. Hmm. And that's, of course, my personal opinion. I do not speak on behalf of this podcast. I don't think my opinion would differ that much, honestly. I think this is the difference between a job, a career, and a lifestyle. And for me, if you're looking to get into software as a job, I think you'll be able to get a job as a software developer. If you're looking at getting into this for a career, I think you could probably make a pretty good career out of this. Even if you don't necessarily retire with the same company you get your first job with, you could probably do quite well and and retire as long as you approach it as a career and understand that there are, are career paths and you need to know what path it is that you're taking as far as your career goes. And if you're doing this sort of as a lifestyle, which has sort of been my thing, your career path looks a lot different. I don't even know how to describe it. It's because I'm not just writing code at work all day, right? I'll write code on my own side hustle in the evenings and weekends. And I'll have my own little businesses going on the side with software that I wrote. And that's kind of a lifestyle choice that I've made and that my wife supports, thankfully. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's really helpful in that sense. But one of the concerns that I have for people who are looking at doing this as the job and they're approaching it from the perspective of, like you said, go in, do the same thing day in and day out and collect a paycheck at the end of the day. One of the concerns that I have is as talented as they are and working with the particular tools that they have learned. Right now, I think our tool stacks are changing every five years on average. So your job is going to be good for, I think, five years. And then what happens? How do you look around at the fact that you're now the senior developer after five years because all the other senior developers left to go and work with some other new tech stack the new sexy or new tools because they have a career in mind new new tools (laughs) new tools (laughs) i just i worry about them and i i i don't know how to help i don't know what advice to give them about how to go from one job to another job and if software is right for somebody who's just looking for a job. But I feel like my perspective on this is completely biased. I have no perspective whatsoever on this. When I look back at all the jobs that I had, I went in, I tried to do as good a job as I could, um, but I didn't consider at any given point in time that I was going to retire a McDonald's employee. I didn't think that I would retire as a salesperson in any of the companies that I worked in for doing sales. I've always been motivated to move forwards, to learn whatever I was most curious about, to add to my toolbox, if you will, and not necessarily get stuck with the same tool set constantly for five years. That's my concern. I would love to hear from people who do this as a job 
what kind of training do they get? Do they get training from their employers? Do their employers have training programs to help them tool up, to help them move forward? Is that on the job training? That I think would be great to know. I would love to know if that's happening out there and what kind of programs and what kind of people do they hire to train people to move up? You must have worked with people like that before, Mike, like people who come to your office who work just for the paycheck. And you can tell because you ask them questions about their hobbies or what they do on the on the side, not necessarily always an indicator, but you kind of get a feel that at the end of the day at five o'clock, they're checked out and they're done. And they're not thinking about coding when they're having a shower or, or on the weekends, right? They're interested in maybe like skiing or snowboarding or some other thing or, or music. Maybe, maybe they want to be a performer, but there's no money in that. Like we were talking about earlier, the, the reality of being a, you know, a musician or an actor or really a lot of creative arts is just kind of unfortunately dead. And I learned that the hard way by getting an arts degree, (laughs) but, (laughs) but anyway, it's really difficult. Like if you're into philosophy, good luck finding a job as a philosopher. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's hard. And so you end up taking one of these jobs, I think where you engage with the material and you engage with the nine to five sort of aspect. And then at the end of the day, you're checked out. And I've worked with people like that before. I know I have, and I'm assuming that you guys both have as well. I do think that it's not the same when I speak for them because I don't know. I'm very passionate about this, obviously. I I write code in my spare time. I write code on the weekends and I think about code all the time. When I'm not writing code, I'm thinking about code. So, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm 100% passionate about it, but there's enough passion there to fuel my everyday lifestyle that I'm thinking about it quite often. But yeah, you're right, like maybe talking to somebody to get their perspective. And I think that's kind of the mantra here. Learn more about other people, engage your curiosity for other people and understand their philosophy and the way that they engage with the material or the content or their day-to-day jobs. And don't just take it at face value of the way you see it. There could be a lot more to it, a lot more complexities behind every person. Just like you were saying before, Al, everyone has their own little fingerprint. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And you know what? I was listening to you guys talking about how passionate you are about programming. I'm passionate about programming and I love programming, but I'm actually even more passionate about a variety of things. Like you can see over my. Uh, yes. Like I said, we right shoulder. I have a couple 3D printers. And uh, well, I was about to ask about those 3D printers and your whole setup. That's pretty elaborate. It looks like you've got quite a few machines up there. I see at least two. Yeah, I have two and a bunch of different filaments and I really enjoy 3D printing, but I'm kind of a generalist geek. I'm kind of geeky about a lot of things. I'm geeky about scuba diving. I'm geeky about 3D printing. I'm geeky about photography. And I know that a lot of the quote unquote professional software developers that I've known throughout my life always have a lot of passions. I know so many people who are into photography and acting and all kinds of crazy things. And I think it has something to do with that left side, right side of your brain sort of mentality where you have to have this creativity and then this logic and they kind of compete against each other. The combination of those two things is really, really powerful. But yeah, I think that when you look at a job as a career where you go there, you make money and then you come home and then you forget about it, that general mindset is specific to the person and their personality, not to programming or working in a warehouse. I think that, like you said, Sean, we've all seen those people, right? Yeah. Um, I used to work at the city of Calgary. 
lots and lots of those people. No slagging or anything towards people who work for government organizations or the government itself. But that tends to be where people like that land because they pretty much have a guaranteed job, right? They're all unionized. As long as they do things the way they're supposed to do, they're there forever. They got a great pension and all that other stuff. When you get into entrepreneurship and startups and all that stuff, that world sort of filters out those people. I don't know a lot of startups that have those sorts of people working for them because startups typically need people to wear multiple hats and be willing to do whatever it takes, whenever it takes to get things done so that they can be a successful company. And the person that sort of sits in the corner and just does their thing and goes home, they typically don't last, not for any specific reason. It's not like they're hunted down and killed because they're not contributing or anything. They just typically don't feel comfortable. It's an environment that's obtuse to where you want to be. And so it's not typical for people to kind of just stay there. This is the experiences that I've had primarily as a startup developer. I haven't worked in big businesses. The largest business I've worked in, 14 people. I haven't worked in any big businesses since 2007. I've done startups, small businesses. I've been employee number two 17 times. I've got equity in 12 different companies that are going nowhere. <laughs> zombies i've shown up for work and found that there were chains around the door handle and we weren't allowed in because we couldn't afford to pay rent you know i've had some pretty good experiences as well i've gotten to watch some of these companies grow and one of the startups i worked with they now employ 12 people it's been eight years going and it's really nice to see them go uh the company i work with right now i was employee number two and we're now at 12 people with six devs we had six on operations, six on development. We're looking to hire some more devs. The nice thing about these experiences is you get to work with those people who do have that passion, who are willing to stay a little bit late because the server crashed. You know, like we don't push code on Fridays anymore, but that's mostly because we don't want to screw up our users over the weekend. And we also have learned that when you push code on Friday, you're going to ruin your weekend. It's just the <laughs> Murphy's law of writing code, right? Yeah. Yep. So yep. there's these wonderful aspects of working in a startup, but there is also the demanding hours. And a lot of the time you're doing the extra hours to solve a particular problem because of the team. Like, you know, Jerry can't pick up and run with his code on the front end until you finish building the database migrations and putting in the API so that he can actually get some real data coming out and you don't want to hold them up. But at the same time, there's also those lovely Friday afternoons where everybody quits at 12 o'clock and goes to the pub together and the boss buys you beers and snacks. And there's those experiences as well. We knock off at three o'clock on a Friday sometimes and play StarCraft and have beers because we socialize and we try to relate to each other as human beings as much as possible. And while I'm happy to say we're not doing 12 hour days anymore and everything's calmed down and we've got our patterns and our rhythms together and things are working well. If at any point everything blew up, even right now while we're recording this podcast, I'd say, sorry guys, I gotta pause it. The servers right. are down. And I don't consider that infringing on my rights as an employee. I consider that one of my shared responsibilities as a member of a small team, because we don't have anybody on call right now, <laughs> you know? I think there's a part that we miss here. And I think it's something that I can kind of 
talk about a bit because I work at a large organization. My organization, we have bases all over the world. And if you don't do something, then somebody else will pick up your slack for you. <laughs> and that's the reality. So how do you manage employees time off? Well, if I want time off, I get time off. And that's kind of the reality. If I wanted to go take a trip for two weeks, I could do that as long as I had the vacation days. Almost always. I've never had a vacation day request rejected and I've taken my fair share. So I think the idea of what I call social accountability, it's still there, but it's not as prominent as in a startup when you work in a large organization. And in addition to that, I think you find a lot more commonly people who do check in at nine and leave at five. And you find people who may not work their full capacity because they might have other obligations. They might have kids that go to school. They might have to take care of their kids because it's the pandemic. They can't send their kids to kindergarten or preschool. There are all kinds of governing situations that can influence somebody's capacity to deliver that whole nine to five job work style that we often talk about when we talk about web development or basically software development in general. So I do think that there is a little bit of a missing context there. It depends on the, the job you work for, and it depends on the way that that job operates. You may or may not go for beers after work on Fridays. You may or may not have to manage servers on the weekends. You might not have to be on call, especially in a large organization. They might have a DevOps team responsible for that. They might have an on-call contracted company that manages all those requests, so you don't even have to think about them. But it always depends on the business. And I think that's really important to think about as we, you know, we talk about the industry, because anybody who's listening to us, this is our perspective. Anybody you talk to at a startup meetup, like say in River City Labs in Australia or Rainforest Alberta or Startup Calgary, a lot of these communities, you'll find people that have very different stories. And it behooves you to find those differences and to understand just like you would in a programming language. How does this person's experience working in the field differ from what I've heard before? And you kind of put together the puzzle of what it feels like to work in that business. And I think at that point, then we have a better idea of, okay, well, this makes sense for me based on what I've heard, but of course, there's always more to learn. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, I think you're 100% right. While you're saying that, I was thinking about another quote or saying that I heard one time, and it was, if you read a book about a topic, you share the opinion of the person who wrote the book. But if you read 100 books on that topic, now you have the ability to form your own opinion. And the fact is that we each have a life experience that's vastly different back to that fingerprint comment. And these are obviously our opinions and our experiences. Someone could be just freaking out on the other end of the speaker right now, listening to us and going, that's not how it yeah, is. It's this right. way because they had a totally different experience than what we're talking about. But I think what it comes down to is if you look hard enough, there will be probably multiple spots for you in multiple organizations of various sizes where you fit comfortably. And back to one of my earlier comments, if you're not happy where you are and you don't fit where you are, then go find another spot where you fit better because it's important to be happy. Don't go to the end of your life and then sit back and think of all the things that you should have done and the things that you wish you could have changed. Change them now. Why not? It's never too late. Well, I think a lot of reasons people stay in their jobs and frustrated is uh, governing circumstances. Like they might have to pay for kids. They want to pay for rent. You know, they have a stable job. They have a nine to five job, but yeah, they don't want to look for anything else. The kinds of people who do these nine to five jobs and don't want to like go outside of their comfort zones. Those are the kinds of people that don't want to change the jobs. And maybe that's kind of the problem that 
I'm thinking about now, these people tend to stay in those positions because they want the stability, because they want that guarantee of the paycheck at the end of the two weeks or whatever. So even if you say to them, well, go find another job if you're not happy, in their minds, they're not thinking about whether they're happy or not. They're going to trudge onwards until they pay off their mortgage in 15 years or whatever. And then by that time, they might as well just retire, <laughs> right? Nicely put. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things that we talked about, right? We talked about passion. We talked about being comfortable in your job. Just now you're talking about people who are in a job where they can't leave because they have certain obligations, family, children, bills to pay, etc. Yeah. Every time I hear someone go down that line of reasoning, I think to myself, well, first of all, there is no such thing as job security. And if you don't believe me, ask some of the companies that that got fired two or 3,000 people in like one week or even one day sometimes. One Zoom call. <laughs> yeah, on a Zoom call. But what it comes down to is if you want to learn some really, really fascinating stuff, look up Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell is an incredible author and philosopher. He had some really, really interesting outlooks on life that are really hard to argue with. Joseph Campbell said that when you're on the right path, then doors will appear where there was formerly walls or something along those lines. Think back in your life, any occasion at any past point in your life, if you were trying to do something and everything you tried was difficult, like no matter what you did, something always went wrong or somebody always interfered or something always changed or something always happened. That basically means that you're not on the right path. If you're on the right path, everything happens effortlessly. And I don't mean literally effortlessly, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying. Things happen. Like I remember when I started a company and everything was so hard. Everything was just so frustrating and so hard and it just didn't go anywhere. And then a different situation I was in, I would just think of something and then the phone would ring or something would just magically happen without even trying. And that always worked out really, really well for me. And I think that if you're not on the right path in life, the universe will tap you on the shoulder and go, uh, hello, like something will happen in your life to make you realize that something's not right. And if you don't listen, it'll tap a little bit harder. And if you still don't listen, if you still stay the course and you're not on the right path, then something very significant will happen to literally kick you in the butt. And there's so many stories out there. Uh, the, one of the best ones is Star Wars because Star Wars was written under the hero's journey. And if you want to Google this and look it up, it's really, really fascinating. But the majority of movies and television shows and stuff out there are written according to the philosophy of the hero's journey, where the hero is in life and they're not necessarily where they want to be, or they're stuck there. And then something massively crazy happens that they can't even do nothing about. And now all of a sudden they're on a new path that they would never have taken on their own. And then they end up becoming the hero of that journey. So you think of Luke Skywalker, he's at home, he's got, he's there with his aunt and uncle. He's stuck there. He's a moisture farmer and he wants to be doing something exciting with his life. And then the empire comes in, kills his aunt and uncle. Ben Kenobi takes him away in a starship and boom, he's off on his adventure, reaches some major thing that he has to overcome. And then boom, now he's in a new place and 
If you think back, a lot of life parallels there for probably most people who are listening to this. If you think back to your life, that hero's journey plays out over and over again throughout your life. And if you're not on the right path, the universe will put you there. So to your point, Sean, if somebody's in a career and they're not happy and they're miserable, but they're staying there because they have to be there because they have to pay their bills or whatever, there's a very good chance if they're not supposed to be there, that the universe is going to come along and kick them in the butt. And whether it be a layoff or a sickness or whatever, something's going to happen and it's going to force them into a new career or a new journey in their life. You know, not to get too weird and take this too far off track, but I maintain that you need to figure it out. You need to find a way if you're not where you're supposed to be, you need to figure it out. Hmm. Right on. Appreciate the, the words. I was listening to an audiobook called The Alchemist. It's a fairly old book. You know about this short story? Absolutely. I've read it. Yeah. You know, it's about a sheep herder. Basically, the universe sends this sheep herder signals. And as soon as the sheep herder engages with those signs, but the idea is that there are like signs. The universe communicates with this protagonist. He's just a sheep herder, but then he ends up embarking on this huge journey where he travels across deserts and does all kinds of really outlandish, no pun intended, acts to try to become an alchemist eventually. He finds that's his calling. But the universe tells that to him. And I find that very interesting because there's so many parallels between other people. And I think one of the lessons that I take from that, and as an entrepreneur, and I think a lot of other entrepreneurs will see that, finding your purpose through other people doesn't necessarily translate to you feeling passionate about a given topic. But investigating whether that specific industry works for you and finding what in that industry does interest you and finding that calling, whether it's making gold or whether it's finding the pleasure in the journey, which is part of the <laughs> learnings from that book, that's the value of life, right? It's finding those different things that you enjoy. But thinking that you'll just engage with all of software development is quite outlandish in a way, and it's not fair to expect that there will be things in software development that you don't enjoy and understanding from some other person that you should like this one aspect or you should like this that's a very kind of pushover way to view your life take control of your life and find what you find passionate and then engage with that and don't listen to us because the point is to not listen to us to find what you do enjoy I think a lot of modern media consumption has pushed us in that direction, and especially consumerism. It tells us how we should behave. You know, men should do this thing. Women should do that thing. To even such an extreme as to how should I live my life? What kind of car should I drive? Consumerism pushes us in these directions. And I think a lot of us have the tendency to extrapolate that to our careers, to find our purpose through other people and the way that they live. But that's not what we're describing here, I don't think, right, Al? We're talking about more of a higher level engagement with the material, engagement with the content to find what we do enjoy, and then taking those little pieces and bits and finding our purpose. But I do think that a lot of people who do those nine to five jobs, I don't know that they do have those callings. I think that like in the book, after a certain amount of ignorance to those signs, that sheep herder wouldn't have had any changes. But he took those as signs and he acted upon them. A lot of people don't act on those signs. They might see something, but they tell themselves they have to pay the bills and they know what works for them. They have a nine to five job. They'll do that job and then they continue and they push onwards. But I don't think that a lot of people take those signs seriously. They just move on and they continue. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Reminds me of a friend of mine. Her name's Renee Robin. She's an incredible composite photographer, one of the most famous in the 
photography circles. She's one of the most famous in the world. She's traveled all over the world to do courses and all that. And if you hear her origin story, it's really impressive. She never touched a camera for most of her life. And she was depressed and not happy. She had a career that she hated and nothing was going to change. And then she had a motorcycle accident. And while she was lying in bed, she was immobilized in bed for months. She ended up on her computer. She ended up taking some photos and someone gave her a camera. She took some photos, brought them into her computer and, and just learned Photoshop while she was sitting in the bed. At the time, although today she's actually quite a good photographer, at the time she wasn't a good photographer. So what she did was she used Photoshop and she came up with these fantasy ideas in her head. And then she used Photoshop to take the components. She would actually shoot the components that she needed for that composite image that she had in her head. And she makes these incredible fantasy photos that are just stunning. It's all self-taught. And now she's a very, very successful world traveling composite photographer. And she never would have been on that path except the universe tapped her on the shoulder a few times and then basically kicked her off her motorcycle. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, there's so many stories like that in real life. We see it a lot in the movies, but so many times in real life that that kind of stuff happens. I got uh, my first full-time job in software by mistake. <laughs> oh, I got to hear this. <laughs> It wasn't my mistake though. I was currently working in sales and I was pretty unhappy where I was at. And I was casually looking through the wanted ads for a new sales position. When I came across a want ad for a web developer who had some experience with maps. And my professional experience actually was in physical geography, cartography, remote sensing, satellite imagery interpretation, and meteorology. That was my university career. I was doing web work on the side just because it was fun and I was enjoying it. And when I saw this ad in the salespeople wanted column, I thought, what are the chances that they misposted and the sales job is actually in the software development column? And sure enough, that's exactly what had happened. So I applied for the job as a software developer and I applied for the job doing technical sales. And then I didn't get either. <laughs> But I was looking at that as an opportunity as, as maybe I should actually be doing software development instead. And so I talked to my soon-to-be wife because we were engaged at the time. We weren't quite married yet. Hey, you know, I kind of, I think I want to make this jump. I think I want to become a software developer. I think I want to do this web thing full-time. I've kind of had it with sales. This is not something that I want to do anymore. And she said, okay. And so I went and I started applying for web development kind of stuff when lo and behold, I got a call from the company that I didn't get the job with asking me if I was still interested because it didn't work out with the person that they did hire. And I did end up getting that job. I did go work for them. It was a three month contract just to see. And then another three month contract and then another three month contract. And it turned out that the three month contracts was they would get their funding from their VC in three months increments right uh, and so they could only take right. me on for three months at a time but i did that for a year and a half and i learned so much and i got to do pretty much freaking everything and it was wow it was a great first experience in the industry yeah but it was a total accident that i ended up getting a web development job instead of another sales position it was just 
So that was your mistake that pushed you in the direction of software development. Yeah, that was my motorcycle crash, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that was the universe tapping, on, <laughs> tapping you on the shoulder. It sure was. Good, good on you for actually listening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe there's somebody out there right now who's hearing something and thinking maybe this is something that they should be doing. And maybe it is. Maybe it is. Well, you know what? There's something important to, to mention at this point, and that's that if anybody's still listening <laughs> uh, after three hours and 12 minutes, um, the, the fact <laughs> of the matter is that you don't have to go black and white, right? You don't have to like mm-hmm. quit your job and then go look for another career, right? right? You can do something at the same time, right? Like you can do something in the evenings and yeah. weekends and you can kind of decide what's happening. Is it work? Is it going to work out? Is money actually starting to come in? Are you actually starting to get too busy and too having too much fun and enjoying it too much to actually want to go to your day job anymore? Then, then you can make the switch. Uh, there's, there's, there's people that go, oh, there's no way you can start a company unless you're burning all your boats and, and you know, oh, yeah. diving in with both feet. And I say bull crap, bull crap yep. on that. You can start a company uh, off the side of your desk or evenings and weekends from home or whatever, and just make sure that, that, that you've got your ducks in a row and you got things lined up and things are, and you're actually able to make money at it. And when that starts to become successful, then you can make the decision to leave your current job that you hate. So I think that's important to say because a lot of people think, well, I can't pay my rent. If I quit my job, how am I going to go and pay my rent? Well, you don't have to quit your job yet. No. (laughs) I did it evenings and weekends on the side. Anybody who had anything that I could do. I started out doing, I don't know if you guys remember the old banner ads. They used to be really popular ones. Oh, yeah. And then those banners would be a very specific thing. And then for 50 bucks, I would make a banner for your blog. Yeah. And so ah. as part of a blogging community back when, you know, you couldn't just go spin up your own WordPress instance or anything like that, or go to WordPress.com and get your own blog or whatever, or Squarespace, like this, like right after GeoCities, yeah. but yeah. before that kind of took off, there was a number of different blogging communities out there, like Blogger came out at that particular time. They all had these upload your own banner image. So I was actually doing that. And then somebody asked, hey, could you match the rest of the style to go with the colors that you put? And, and so then I learned CSS. And from that, I learned how to manipulate HTML. And then after that, I learned how to use some JavaScript. And then I learned how to self-host and then I learned Linux and Apache, and then I learned PHP, and then I started learning databases. Then I built my own blogging system from the ground up, all before I had a full-time job. And I was making $150, $200 a week, and this is late 90s, so that's, what, $500 a week in today's money, which was grand. It was really good. I was paying $500 a month in rent, I was making $200 a week in side hustle project stuff. And it was working out okay for me just as a side thing, honestly. And ease into it. Start slow, see if it interests you. And if you're engaged with the uh, prospect of becoming a software developer, then you will find a way because your passion will allow you to find that way. And you will find yourself interested and engaged and you'll enter flow state. The time will just whiz by and you'll know at that point that, okay, 
It's time to make a career shift. And by then, hopefully, you'll have established a portfolio. You'll have some side projects like Mike's example. He had a blog from the ground up. He did some side projects. Maybe you end up hopping on freelancer.com or Fiverr even. You could have so many different opportunities to have little side business slash hustles where you have little side projects and small projects that you can engage with. And if you find yourself engaged, then you'll do a good job and you'll learn more with each and every time. But I like that idea of easing into it. A lot of people forget that they can slowly ease into the idea of becoming a software developer. We were just talking in the last episode about how he was actually writing code for the company he was doing his day job at and shipping and receiving, logistics specialist. And he was actually writing some software to try and help manage the workflow in the warehouse. I had the same experience. One of the things that I did on the side while I was a logistics specialist was create a little piece of software so that I could manage what was being picked and shipped and what inventory we had on the shelf completely separate from anything else that was going on. And I didn't get paid a dime for that software, but boy, did I ever learn a lot while I was working a full-time job and also while I was attending school. (laughs) Yeah, That's a huge point, Mike, that you just brought up. Sometimes you can pivot your career inside the company that you currently work for. Oh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. If you like the company and the company likes you, maybe you're just in the wrong seat. Maybe you just need to be doing something different in that company. And in some of the larger companies, they'll actually cover the cost of your education to actually pivot to something that is actually going to be really useful to them. And whether that's data science or programming or whatever, maybe project management's your thing or product management or something along those lines. I mean, there's tons of opportunities. Sometimes you just have to open your eyes and see what's out there and maybe ask if you like your company, maybe sit down with your supervisor or your boss or or whoever and just say, hey, I know you're always talking about opportunities for advancement and whatever. How about pivots? (laughs) How about, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's my story. And Mike, you as well, you said you mm-hmm. you had applied for a job to work in uh, sales and you end up pivoting in that same company to working as a software developer. And likewise for myself, I ended up getting hired as a graphic designer and then I pivoted to working as a web developer. Of course, at the end of that internship, <laughs> my boss had said to me, Sean, you did a terrible job. You're a terrible software developer. I had that really terrible, gruesome conversation, the the confrontation that I absolutely had dreaded. I knew it was coming. And finally, they, they said to me, we're not extending your internship. And that was such a pivotal moment for me because I had to really look inside myself to think about, is this a career that I want to pursue? Despite what anybody else tells me, is this my future? And when I looked inside and I really did some deep digging into what I wanted, because I'd seen the lifestyle, I'd seen the work-life balance of people who come in, and a lot of it, unfortunately, was the nine-to-five grind that we described of people just coming in to do the job and then leaving and not really thinking about the software in their showers. But I had looked at that and I had thought about how I was thinking about software every night of the time that I was implementing these graphic designs. I was so curious about the way to implement them with HTML and JavaScript. And that's how I knew, because I thought about more and more and more and more. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, yes, I want to do this. I am super passionate about this, and I want to do this as a living. I'm so passionate about it. But maybe part of it was that that passion was not necessarily there where I first started. But it was important for me to realize that. 
I was feeling passionate based on perhaps the lack of passion or because I had not seen myself as a software developer until that point. But I did end up pivoting from within the workplace. Like Mike as well, I think you had something pretty similar, but you had just started as you described. It, it was a totally different company in my case. Yeah. The software that I wrote for the first company to help manage their warehouse, they didn't continue using it after I left. <laughs> Because no one else knew how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I have one final question for you. Within this pandemic, we've had a lot of struggles to meet people. And I want to ask what's going on with Rainforest Alberta and how can people engage with other people now that the restrictions, at least in Calgary, have been more or less lifted? Are there any upcoming events or meetups that entrepreneurs can join to meet other entrepreneurs or to learn about potential software development opportunities within the entrepreneurship and startup space? Yeah, good question. So if you haven't already heard or you don't already know, used to be Calgary Technologies Incorporated up by the university. They've now moved downtown and they've actually built a building. It's called Platform Calgary now. And Platform Calgary is basically right across 9th Avenue from the Calgary Public Library Central, right by the Music Center. Um, The building is gorgeous. And it's now going to be the central hub of innovation in Calgary. And when it opens a little bit later this month, I think, or maybe early next month, I can't remember, But if you go to platformcalgary.com, you can learn about it. The goal there is that this building is going to house anybody and anything that has anything to do with innovation and entrepreneurship. So you'll walk in the door and there'll be a little coffee shop with some basic, beautiful coffees and some nice treats and stuff like that. And you'll be able to go there and say, I'm interested in blah. And they'll go, oh, well, you'll want to talk to so-and-so. So it'll be like this incredible collision space. And there's going to be like a big area with tables and counters and things where you can just get to know who's involved in whatever. They're actually going to be hosting the Rainforest Lunch Without Lunch events at the new platform building starting this right on. this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. Wow. So they're going back cool. in person. and. Just to be totally simple, for people who want to make it really uncomplicated, if you want to get to know who to know about what, it's Rainforest. Rainforest Lunch Without Lunch is where you want to go, whether it's the online version or the in-person version. Startup Calgary and Platform Calgary have now merged in the new platform building, along with a whole bunch of other amazing companies. If you go there, you will learn anything and everything that you need to know about the ecosystem that you want to accomplish. So whether you're starting a business or whether you're looking for a job in the ecosystem or whether you want to be a co-founder or anything like that, it's all going to be there. And that's the place to be. I told them when they were building the building, hey, guys, this sounds awesome. I'm just going to live here. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) And as it stands with the unfortunate events of the last two years, It's been impossible to really go out and be around lots of people and stuff like that. So now that things are starting to let up a little bit and people are starting to get back together and be in person again, you're going to see a lot of big deals open up. There's a lot of people in the ecosystem that share events and things that are going on in the ecosystem. There's Pixels and Pints is going to be firing up sometime soon, I think. You can listen to the Rainforest podcast episode with, I think it was 160 with um, our friend Tony Grimes. And he talks about Pixels and Pints events getting started again. Um, but there's so many things going on. 
If you're into blockchain, there's the Canadian Blockchain Consortium, which is started and based here in Calgary. There's machine learning and there's quite a big machine learning community in Calgary. There's software development communities all over the place. Meetup.com is probably a good place to go and look for some of this stuff. But honestly, the easy no-brainer for everybody is go to Rainforest Lunch Without Lunch and get to know some people, ask questions, be curious, and see where you can go from there. Right on. That's great. And we'll obviously put all those links in the show notes at the end of this podcast. Well, I've, I've learned a tremendous amount from you today, uh, Al, and I want to thank you for coming on. I also want to ask you before we uh, leave our listeners here, what does the future spell for you? I know you've you've worked a bit or you work currently at Evolve U as well as uh, you work in, a, in as, you know, in a few side hustles mm-hmm. as well. What, what does the future look like for you in terms of uh, where you see yourself? Do you see yourself working mostly in the uh, platform Calgary building or uh, from your home office with elaborate 3D printers? Well, yeah, you know what? I got to say, just like you, Sean, I kind of love working from home. Yeah. <laughs> My goal is to get out as often as I can, but not be forced to do that. I want to go out because I feel like it. Right. You know, schedule some meetings on a day where I'm going to be downtown or something and then kind of get that all done and then be home for the rest of the week or something along those lines. Definitely. Definitely. But yeah, to to directly answer your question, my big deal right now is my new company. It's called New Idea Machine. Okay. And the goal there is to give hands-on experience to new software developers. So once they leave the boot camps, they can come join us and get hands-on experience which is great for the entire ecosystem because now people who are a little bit hesitant to hire junior developers can now hire experienced junior developers. I don't think you'd be considered an intermediate after one year, but the goal is that they're going to come through us, get some hands-on experience and be more marketable. So if people are looking for developers, please reach out to me. Not only can you pull them right out of Inception U, But you can also pull them out of New Idea Machine because we have a great supply of amazing new people that are just getting into this. Everybody needs a chance. Everybody needs a place to start. And if you give people in this ecosystem, if you give the new people a chance to start, then three years from now, there's going to be plenty of developers out there for everybody. If you restrict yourself to just hiring senior developers, you're going to find that they're very, very expensive and money talks and they're going to be going wherever they find the most money and you're going to be playing a game that you can't win. So take a chance on some new people and watch how passion and the ability to learn can really change everything. That's my pitch. Wow. (laughs) Right on. That sounds awesome. You're building the community and helping everybody get jobs out of those universities. That's great. That first job is so hard. It is. Right on. It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so important too. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I'll thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Al. Hopefully, you know, things work out as well with this new idea machine. That sounds amazing. Definitely have the links in the show notes. And we'll hopefully catch up with you again in a little bit. We'll have maybe a follow-up episode where we see how things went with all the Rainforest Alberta stuff. And then we can also pry a little bit into this new idea machine. I'm actually very curious about how that works. So Awesome. Maybe we'll save that mystery for the next episode with Al. Thank you so much again for coming on, Al. Hey, thanks, guys. It was an honor and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed being here. Right on.